0: So, opening quote. We can't control certain events or dramatic change in life. For real, not theoretically. We cannot control certain events or dramatic change in life, but we can control how we react and how we respond. That is the great invitation of this path. Things are happening personally, interpersonally, um, uh, systems level, uh, global level, things are happening. They're completely outside of our control and we can be in relationship with it. And we are being in relationship with it, being here. That's a quote by Dr. Jill Hicks. um, And I'm going to tell a little bit more of her story later on. It's a story that really moves me that I've been reflecting on for years and how she walks the spiritual path. Um, but just to say that currently she's an activist and a consultant and has put together a team of people for peace PeaceWork. Um, she's an organization, uh, Mad for Peace. And one of the incredible invitations for practice out of that organization is that for every terrorist act on this earth, that humanity as a collective or groups of people in collectives offer five positive actions for every act of terrorism that we're aware of. That's powerful. And we can be a part of that. Actually, what we're doing here is a part of that. We need these times for rest and renewal so that we can get out there and see and care and respond to what's happening in this world. But we need these times of hibernation. It's the perfect time of year. So I'm really glad that you had all the conditions to give yourself the gift. So, an analogy, and I really had to think about using this analogy. It's from a French film from a number of decades ago. It's got a great title actually, A Valley Obscured by Clouds. It's a great metaphor for our practice. It's like we've got this great spacious valley, imagine it's fertile, and yeah, sometimes it gets obscured by clouds. And so definitely the movie is, is, you know, got a lot of mainstream movie themes and is not high on the integrity scale. But if you think about the title, A Valley Obscured by Clouds, that makes sense. So here's the analogy. There is the ocean, and the ocean is love. And there's a bottle floating in the ocean full of water. The bottle is you. And if you break it, there is no bottle alone. There's the ocean. And in the Buddhist tradition, there's tons and tons of metaphors um, about the way that we create and maintain and defend and assert this small contracted sense of me, and all the beliefs that support it, and the judgments and the comparisons and everything that we do to be okay and be safe. And these metaphors of the ocean being the great ocean of awakeness, of Nibbana. There's this one um, wonderful sutta that's basically called the log, and it talks about logs floating down the river. And the different ways that that log, the log kind of being a metaphor for who we take ourselves to be, and all the different ways the log can get stuck, you know, on the outer bank and the inner bank and the way we get caught up in our sense door experience and the way we get um, caught up in kind of what we call the defilements, all those environments of wanting and not wanting and confusion and, and all the ways that we can derail before we reach the ocean. So the theme of the teaching tonight is actually how fear transforms into love. And how this sense of separateness that we develop and support and care about a great deal, um, how that untangles itself how it's happening here, how we can support it to happen here, and what happens when that which is free starts to shine through, basically. But first we need to talk about why it isn't shining through, because basically the potential is here. The potential is right here. We don't need different lives, different bodies, different situations. This potential for freedom shining forth Sometimes it's said in the text, is nearer than near. You know, is timeless and available and can be experienced by each of us in our wisdom. You know? But first we've got to talk about fear. You good friends with fear? You'll probably be better friends with it before we're done here. So I thought I would bring in some great teachings and metaphors from an old novel that I absolutely love. It's called The Life of Pi. Do you remember The Life of Pi? It's by uh, Jan Martel. This is Maybe some of you haven't read it yet. I've you know? got to revisit these things. They keep coming back around. The Life of Pi uh, is an incredible story. It's, um, it's based on a true story of a young man, Pi Patel, Indian, and he uh, took a ship from India, and I believe I actually don't remember where that ship was landing. Whether it might have been Mexico, there was a piece about Canada, and anyway, it doesn't matter where it was ending up because it didn't get there. It sank. There's a huge problem, and the ship actually sank. And so Pai found himself, believe it or not, as the story goes anyway, in a life raft in the middle of the ocean, and this ocean was not the ocean of Nibbana, unfortunately, although in some ways it became the ocean of Nibbana for him, the catalyst for his own understanding and awakening, and he's in the middle of the ocean in a life raft with a few unwanted guests, Okay. So, think about this in terms of our own retreat. Here we are on our chairs and cushions in an ocean of experience. And have you had any unwanted guests yet? <laughs> uh, you'll notice that they come and go. That's really important. This principle, this insight of changing experience. Don't miss it. So, here were his guests there was an orangutan. There was a hyena that didn't last long. There was a zebra with a broken leg. And there was a 450 pound Bengal tiger named Richard Parker on the life raft, which is why the hyena didn't last long. So, um, you know, we, we think we've got reasons to fear. And the answer is we do, but he really did. And so I like to read a little bit his descriptions of fear because they're very, very visceral. And fear is a visceral experience. I must say a word about fear. It's life's only true opponent. Only fear can defeat life. It is a clever, treacherous um, adversary, how well I know. It has no decency, respects no law or convention, and shows no mercy. It goes for your weakest spot, which it finds with unerring ease. It begins in your mind, always. One moment you're feeling calm, self-possessed, and happy. And then fear, disguised in the garb of a mild-mannered doubt, slips into your mind like a spy. Doubt meets disbelief, and disbelief tries to push it out. But disbelief is a poorly armed foot soldier. Doubt does away with it with little trouble that hindrance. And then you become anxious. Reason comes to do battle for you. You are reassured. Reason is fully equipped with the latest weapons technology to battle fear. But to your amazement, despite superior tactics and a number of undeniable victories, reason is laid low. You feel yourself weakening, wavering. Your anxiety becomes dread. So we'll stop there. I'll pick it up a little later. Now, basically, um, the fundamentals of how fear works, it it starts with the basic split. As soon as we move from that experience of wholeness um, and connection and move into that bottle that has a tight stopper of me and who I am and how it needs to be, the controlling Donald was talking about last night, all of these pieces... Um, then we're already moving into fear territory. And so, as soon as we've got two, there's something to um, not just relate to, but in our conditioning, in our conditioning to defend and assert with. Okay? And then Basically, we move into second arrow territory. So we're starting the struggle, and the struggle is the wanting, and the struggle is the not wanting, and the struggle is who I take myself to be, and is it going to be okay? And it grows. And we're creating ourselves endlessly. I'm sure you've been noticing this. It's like the littlest thing happens, and it just creates us again. Please also be on the lookout for the gaps. In between the creation of me. Because they are there. And as we settle and open, they start to reveal themselves. Oh, there was that sound. Normally, I would have created a whole thing about that. It didn't happen. Oh, there was that sensation in the body. Normally, there would have been a whole fear storm about that. Huh. It's almost disorienting a little bit sometimes. And then there's that ease and that rest and that peace. And it's so easy to actually think that we're disconnected. I've had people come in and check in with me and say, I feel bored. And when I've talked with them more, what we've discovered is there's more peace than they'd ever experienced. (laughs) You know, these things happen. They happen. So basically every single time our solid separate sense of self takes a hit, We're moving into action to protect it. And we do that because we care. And we do that because of conditioning. And we do it because of fear. Uh, And it's not awakeness shining forth. But if we bring compassion there, that can actually open the doorway to awakeness shining forth right there. So there's this wonderful quote. It's actually been attributed to a number of people And um, it's often quoted by Mahagosananda, uh, the the late Cambodian uh, monastic master, and Gandhi, so a teaching out of the nonviolence movement. I love it, though. I practice with it a lot. I actually have memorized it, so I, I work with it as a practice. And where am I in this quote at any given time? So it goes like this. The thought becomes the word the word transforms into the deed, the deed hardens into the character, and the character manifests as the destiny. So, watch your thoughts with care, and let them spring from love, out of respect for all beings. We can watch that progression while we're here. It starts with a thought, and then it turns into some action, And then it turns into who I am. And then it's how I'm manifesting in the world. And the world right now is the retreat. And what's the suggestion? That we watch, that we see, and that we bring care to it. And that we keep accessing the love, the kindness, the friendliness. So Gerald um, Jampolsky. Gerald Jamposky is the author of Love is Letting Go of Fear. Great title, great book. He's also one of the founders of a system called Attitudinal Healing. And I found it to be um, a very supportive adjunct dharma practice system when I was grieving the death of my mother, which was almost 20 years ago now. And that's when I discovered his work. And... um, So I wanted to bring this in. And this is from his book, Love is Letting Go of Fear. Love and fear can never be experienced at the same time. So we have to hold that in terms of the flickering of experience. We could definitely argue with that, but in the flickering of experience, check and see what what your truth is and trust that. Love and fear can never be experienced at the same time. It is always our choice as to which of these emotions we want. This is the line I really like in this. By choosing love more consistently than fear, we can change the nature and the quality of our relationships. It's that choice that we're cultivating. And no, we don't always have control over it, but leaning into, being available for that choice over and over again, hundreds and thousands of times, it creates momentum. Oh, we know that. He says love is the total absence of fear. Love asks no questions. Its natural state is one of extension and expansion, not comparison and measurement. So when we get in that judgmental mind that um, every single one of us experiences, then we're in the movement of contraction and protection. And we can see it and care and go, oh yeah, that's what's happening. System's protecting itself. And then we can notice when it starts to move into the pendulation, into the movement of expansion and like, oh yeah, there's the connection. There's the contraction. There's the connection. Because it's happening with everything. So a few ways for making better friends with fear. And these really apply in terms of meditative tools across the board, but they're limited in the sense of they're primarily meditative tools. So then we take them and the training of them and they may need to manifest differently out in our lives. And that's the great art when we leave here is that bridge. And it's totally creative process. But right now, we'll keep it right here. Name a few kinds of fear. I already named them in some ways once. It's like sometimes the fear is felt very individually. You know? It's about me. It's coming up through me. It's personal. Right? So to be able to name the different characteristics and the different muses for fear helps clarify and normalize what's going on. Individual, interpersonal, you know, we've all had relational situations where fear has arisen. And we may make choices to say something or not say something, to do something or not do something, to end something or continue something. But part of the way that we make those decisions in wholeness is that we have our own inner process to inform that. So it's an inner inner outer Uh, We've definitely got things going on always systemically that lead us to have fear. I mean, everything from unequal access to power and resources to discrimination of so many different types, racism, fear about who's making the decisions worldwide about all different kinds of things. It's scary. And then the last one I want to mention is environmental fear. It's very interesting. Here we are in the solstice retreat, the darkest time of the year. And do you ever have that feeling? I have this feeling. I've been having it for quite some years since California has been in drought. And I know you're not all from California. Different weather systems, different places. I wake up in the morning. It's the middle of the winter. It's an absolutely beautiful day. It's like, oh, nice. Nice. And then something deep inside the nervous system goes, something's wrong. And it's just like this little, like, is it okay? I live in an extreme fire zone. But what I'm increasingly aware of is I'm not alone. (laughs) A lot of you came up from Southern California for this retreat. I want you to know that those of us in Northern California have been praying for you in your homes. And people all over the place, you know, when we're having these weather systems, whether it's Puerto Rico or Santa Rosa or Santa Barbara or the fires up in Canada this summer. The West Coast is burning. Didn't used to happen this way. It's scary. So we actually need to gather our resiliency and be able to name these hard truths. So that we can take direct action, both to protect ourselves and our families and our homes, and also to engage change so that maybe um, it doesn't have to get even worse. No. We don't have a lot more time to wait here. I think we know that. I know we're busy. So, um, naming it in the body, cultivating metta. These are the three areas. So naming it starts with the noting practice. Okay, we're sitting here minding our own business, mindfully breathing in, mindfully breathing out, little twinge over here, little thought over there, and boom, huh? Fear, there it is. Let's see here. The matter is difficult to put into words from the life of Pi, for fear, real fear, such as it shakes you to your foundation, such as you feel when you're brought face to face with your mortal end, nestles in your memory like a gangrene. It seeks to rot everything, even the words with which to speak of it. When you think about some of the hard truths going on in society today, how much courage it takes to speak out, so you must fight hard to express it you must fight hard to shine the light of words upon it because if you don't if your fear becomes a wordless darkness that you avoid and perhaps even manage to forget you open yourself to further attacks of fear because you never truly fought the opponent who defeated you isn't that powerful It's like, this is not just when you have a 450-pound Bengal tiger in your life raft. We have our own 450-pound Bengal tiger. Like, can we have the courage and the clarity and the intention and the caring to see it and name it, not once, but over and over? Here you are again, fear. I have a, a favorite story about this, and it's interesting because I was told the story well over a decade ago, and at this point I don't actually remember which details of this story were the original story, because it's an archetypal story. I've heard versions of the story over and over again, uh, and it's a story from a family meditation practice, family dharma. And so for 20 years earlier in my career, I actually worked with families and youth. And the last 10 years of that, I worked with families and youth in the Dharma here at Spirit Rock, um, teaching meditation, mindfulness, compassion, Dharma. It was a lot of fun. Now imagine this meditation hall seriously. Um, 125 people, ages 5 to 80. The five-year-olds in the front row with three Zafus each bouncing up and down. No, oh. And some of you actually know this. You know, there's a whole handful of you here, actually, that I met through um, s- supporting and being with you as we raised your children in the Dharma. And some of you were the young people in the Dharma. Oh. I'm really glad you're here. I'm really glad we're all here. So this is a story from that period. And it's a story about a father and his son, who, if I remember correctly, was about eight years old at the time of this story. And so kind of that age where they're still really sweet, just generally speaking, not always, (laughs) but just generally speaking, but also starting to kind of move into a transitional period where, you know, seeing things a little bit more, pushing in a certain way. So this father and uh, his son were taking a hike in the woods. And they're going up the hill and... You know how hikes go. Even if you're by yourself, you've had this happen. You go a little further than you thought. It takes a little longer than you thought. The sun seems to go down sooner than you thought, especially if it's winter. And so there they are out somewhere. And um, the father's realizing the sun is you know, going to be going down. So, and he basically says, oh, son, we, we need to go back now. And they start back down the trail, the hike. And they're deep in the woods. And it's getting dark no flashlight. And the son starts to get a little squirrely. Now you can feel it. We can feel it in ourselves. We can feel it in our loved ones. It's just not quite comfortable, but he's not willing to admit it yet. So the father's like, you okay, son? Oh, I'm fine. How many times have we done that? I'm fine. We're not fine. We're feeling a little squirrely. Oh, Sylvia Borstein, has a great line when people ask her how she is. People go, Sylvia, how are you? And she smiles and she says, I couldn't be better. Yeah, yeah some of you got it. <laughs> I couldn't be better. So it sounds really good, but also it's honest. I couldn't be better than how it is with conditions right now. <laughs> but you don't explain all that to a stranger. You just say, I couldn't be better. This is stealth dharma. Nobody knows we're doing it. Oh) <laughs> uh, so he's not willing to admit it, and it's getting darker, and they're going down the hill. And, and and eventually what happens, because the son is not in a place where he can see or name his fear, is he starts to freak out, and he stops. He's just like, it's too dark, it's too dark, and he's shaking, you know, and meltdown. And the father, in a moment of wisdom, which, you know, we as parents know, does not always happen, in a moment of wisdom, um, crouches down next to his son and says, yeah, it's, it's scary, isn't it? <laughs> Melting down. Because it's right that age where you can still do that young meltdown or you can do that almost teenage thing. And so the father says, well, do you want to know what I do when I get scared? No, <laughs> just like not even together enough to have a coherent response. And then he sort of starts to calm down a little. I mean, this happens inside of us. And, you know, what do we need? We need our own awareness to crouch down beside us and say, hey, I know this. I'm here. I care. This is compassion. And so the son finally says, yeah, yeah, you know, tell me. And, and the dad says, well, when I get scared, um, I have a special thing I do. And what I do is I say, hello, fear, because the dad was a meditator. I say, hello, fear. And the son was like, <laughs> you know, What? He said, well, well, just try it. I'll try it for you first. That's kind of like when we're having trouble in our metta practice, you can call somebody in to be an ally and just like, be there in your field of friendliness while you're wishing well to yourself or someone else. The father was doing that for his son and saying, I'll say it for you. Hello, fear. Hello, fear. Do you want to say it with me? No. Hello, fear. And he starts saying, hello, fear. And soon enough, they're like charging down the hill and it's really dark. And just screaming, hello, fear, at the top of their lungs, <laughs> hello? transformation. Not only that, but now an ability to be able to recognize something and be in relationship with it. We can't always plan or control what happens. We can have a relationship how we respond or react. So the PS to that story is a few weeks later, and actually I realized this must have happened in the summer because it was a summer night and uh, dark outside and the kid was outside. You know, this is, this is very contextual in terms of California, outside in the hot tub. And the father hadn't heard him in a while, was about to go out into the hot tub anyway, just had a moment of fear, is my kid Okay. And we do that. We do that for our bodies. Is our body okay? Is my heart okay? Is my kid okay? Is it okay? And uh, so he poked the head out the door because it was really quiet. He wasn't hearing anything. And all of a sudden he hears nothing. He's like, is my kid okay? And he hears this little tiny voice. Hello, fear. And obviously the kid had gotten afraid outside in the dark. And he remembered. He remembered how to meet that moment. Yeah. You know? that's what we're doing and there's traditional buddhist stories about this about the archetypal kind of energetic mara but i wanted to tell a very kind of real this is our live story of it because that's the expression of um, basically the energy that came when siddhartha was being rocked by everything including fear and he put his hand on the earth, you know, it's like Mara is, is kind of the, the title for this energetic of that which can take us off our seat, off our path, definitely includes fear, you know, worry, anxiety, doubt, the whole gestalt. And, you know, he worked with it, he saw it, he recognized it, he named it, he asked for support, he put his hand on the earth for refuge and witness, hey, I can meet this Freedom is here. I'm not going to let this take out the potential for freedom. This is a pivotal story in the Buddha's Enlightenment. It's not a story I'm going to tell. I'm going to talk about the body. So fear in the body, back to life of Pi. Great description. Next, fear fully turns to your body, which is already aware that something terribly wrong is going on. Already your lungs have flown away like a bird and your guts have slithered away like a snake. Now your tongue drops dead like an opossum while your jaw begins to gallop on the spot. Your ears go deaf. Your muscles begin to shiver as if they had malaria and your knees to shake as if they were dancing. Your heart strains too hard while your sphincter releases too much and so on with the rest of your body. Every part of you in the matter most suited to it falls apart. Only your eyes work well. They always pay proper attention to fear. So we can recognize it's happening. And then we can drop down in the body. But there's some very specific ways that support that process to be resiliency building instead of trauma continuing. And that's what I'll talk a little bit about. Um, so our basic nervous system responses, right? Fight, flight, or freeze. And um, the first thing to say is that our nervous system is a very ancient creature. It's very, very old. I have an a ongoing open question. If the technology is changing every six months, how will the nervous system ever be able to catch up? Um, So it needs all the support we can give it in these times. And it's part of our first foundation of mindfulness practice. Mindfulness of the body. So talk specifically about it in supporting fear. But actually these two practices that I'm about to mention are incredibly supportive with lowering any type of reactivity in the nervous system. You'll notice it as thoughts or emotions Or the body does all the things that the Life of Pi just mentioned. And like, how do we use the wisdom of the body to come back into balance? So the first practice that I want to mention, um, also an acknowledgement to Peter Levine, who's the scientist and founder of Somatic Experiencing, a great mindfulness system for working with the nervous system. And I've woven these together with the traditional texts and, and meditation practices. So the first one's called orienting. Now I'm going to talk about these, but I would encourage you the, to actually try them on as I'm talking. Because otherwise you go, yeah, that sounds good. And it will seem like nothing. Especially this first one. Because all we need for orienting are a somewhat functional pair of eyes and a somewhat functional neck. It's the good enough model. And basically, when we look at the Satipatthana Sutta, the four foundations of mindfulness, the four ways we can be mindful, the whole sutta, the whole um, text, starts with the word in Pali, ida. And ida in the Pali means here. So I started to reflect on, okay, what does it actually take to get us here and keep us here? If we leave the body and the nervous system out, we are going to keep popping out into those thoughts. No. We need to bring the whole thing together. So with orienting, uh, if you will indulge me in a mindfulness experiment, without looking at each other, a lot of eye contact and such, so that people feel safe in this environment, we're just going to start looking around, okay? Now, this is not the adult mind. This is, I know where I am. This is the nervous system. So we're looking around, we're looking behind us even if we think we know what's behind us. We are landing our eyes on every single set of doors in this hall, the nervous system loves to know where the exits are just in case. Fear, right? You can tell yourself, I know where the doors are but it won't help your nervous system. I would encourage you to look up and take in the incredible expanse of the ceiling. It's such a resource for spaciousness when you're feeling boxed in by your own story. Just look up. Maybe find something in the room that's, um, in terms of the feeling tone, is pleasant for you, your favorite color, or just something that um, you just have a sense of ease. Just take it in. Okay. When we start to get scared, the walls close in. And sometimes we can even see it in our visual field. It's like, I just can't see anymore. But sometimes it's not that extreme. And so this orienting process helps um, the body and mind stay together with some consistency. And the continuity of mindfulness practice is everything. So it supports it. Now, what if every time you walked into your room or the dining hall or this hall, even though I know you know where you are by now, you just took a moment to look around and really orient yourself to here. is especially powerful if you find yourself walking in the dining hall telling a big long story about something. It just interrupts it. This is a possibility. you're in a meeting at home and it's starting to get super, super stressful and you can't leave because your job depends on you staying in the room, you can look around. Nobody's going to ask you why you're looking around. You casually glance at the door. You're doing something for the deeper system, right? The other practice I want to mention is called resourcing. And it's a grounding practice. And what it needs are portals and for a lot of us we have four portals and the four if you have all four are the palms of the hands and the soles of the feet okay these are places where extra reactivity can discharge move out through the system right and so the touch point practice that donald was mentioning in the instructions we're breathing in we're breathing out and then in between the breaths where we get lost in something. We could take that opportunity to feel our hands resting or touching. That allows the next breath to come to us. It also ongoingly supports the body nervous system to discharge any reactivity. We know scientifically as well as in our direct experience that anxiety, fear, reactivity tend to move up. You look at your basic startle response, right? You go, and then what happens is we go, oh, I'm okay. You know, I'm all right. It's fine. No big deal. And sometimes we actually stay stuck up for a really long time and we don't know it. So this helps things move and find their balance because the body knows. The body has this wisdom, but we need to support it to have this wisdom, Otherwise, it's working overtime. Another way we can use resources, and we start to get really upset emotionally, um, some other way, fear or something else, just taking a little time to feel your feet. And we're doing this with the um, elements, which is a whole mindfulness training. Elements are um, fire, water, earth, air, fire, water. It's funny if I don't say them in order, I can't remember them all. <laughs> earth air fire water so basically what we're looking for is warm and cool heavier light um, pulsing vibrating flowing and just being with them as they are and caring and being present and grounding in the midst of some storm very helpful now again these practices you don't just orient once and go, oh, I got it, and my nervous system's fine. The same way you don't just be mindful of breath once and go, ah, enlightened, okay, next. It takes repetition, it takes a lot of repetition. So, naming it in the body, cultivating metta. Loving kindness is the traditional antidote to fear, um, the Buddhist teaching. And the kind of the whole backstory on it, um, and it's interesting because there are teachings in it for us in terms of how we relate with our emotional, mental, physical world. So I'm going to tell the real short version of this because I want to get to the story about Jill. The short version of how um, one of the ways that metta came to be taught is that a whole group of monastics went for a three-month rains retreat in India there's monsoon even to this day during monsoon season travel is difficult so it's a good time to be in retreat they found a spot in the foothills of the Himalayas which means by the way about 8,000 feet and in that area of the Himalayas the rains are particularly torrential because of rain shadow effect And so there they were, they had um, places to meditate, they had support from the community. It was like very ideal circumstances, kind of like here. But you know how it goes, ideal circumstances and then dot, dot, dot. So there's always something. And the something for these monastics were there were unseen forces inhabiting the woods that they were meditating in. The Buddhist tradition, they're called devas. All I would say is, whether you hold this literally or metaphorically, the story is helpful. Devas are kind of the West, like Eastern equivalent of, like in the West, we might say angels. But that's not quite, it doesn't quite work. It's cousins. Anyway. So, basically, there were these unseen forces that were inhabiting the woods, and you know how it is. I mean, here we are in the holidays, family comes, and you're really happy to welcome them for a few days, but what if they stayed for two months or three months, like a rains retreat? Would you still be happy? Maybe. So, the monks overstayed their welcome. And so the devas started doing things to get rid of them, like um, stinky smells to stink them out, and um, scary noises that crack in the middle of the night to freak them out, all kinds of different things. And at some point, the monastics lost their stability of concentration and did experience fear and went to the Buddha and said, "Nah, those are not conducive conditions for enlightenment. You know, like, send me somewhere else. (laughs) And the Buddha said, forget it. Those are the perfect conditions for awakening. Have I got a practice for you, loving kindness. This is what should be done by those who are skilled in goodness and who know the path of peace, you know, in the whole metta sutta. But what's interesting to me about the story is that the monks went back and practiced loving kindness in similar ways to what we're doing here. And to me, the most important part of the story is that that which was an obstacle, the devas became obstacles to the monastic's meditation. And through the power of friendliness and welcoming and inclusion, that obstacle, those devas being obstacles, transformed into allies. And they were actually so transformed by the change in the field, that which we can't see but we can sense that they actually became supports for the monastic's practice for the rest of the retreat. This is true when we're working with difficulties. Those very things that are an obstacle can become the awakening force, the support, the ally, the friend. It happens all the time. And the same thing in the world. We can be the, you know, we can have places where we're not seen and then transform and become the ally. And we need that in this world. We've all got blind spots. We're a work in progress. And we care. So we keep seeing and we keep transforming and we keep responding as best we can so that we stay connected. Very imperfect. So, a story about Jill Hicks. I've been wanting to share this for some years, and I was just kind of looking for the appropriate opportunity. As I said before, I've really been reflecting on her experience and her practice and her insights for for a while. So, uh, Dr. Jill Hicks is actually best known internationally as one of many um, hundreds, if not thousands of people who have survived a terrorist attack. And I really thought about this before I brought this in, because, you know, in this country, there's been a lot going on with not safe and and real harm. And I thought, okay, I'm going to bring something in that happened over a decade ago. This happened in 2005. It happened in Britain, but at the same time, I really want to acknowledge our impact of what's happening in this country and it's happening around the planet and we know that. And it's an incredible story of transformation, which is why it inspires me so much. So you might remember among the so many terrorist attacks that have happened in the last decade that in London, in the middle of the summer in 2005, there was a bombing uh, in the tube in the, in the subway. And Jill was on that subway. And she talked about how when she got on the subway that day, she was commuting. It was her regular commute. Everything was just, you know, what you do when you get in a subway. You sort of find your own space and not pay much attention, you know, thinking about work. And we don't know sometimes the most amazing thing happens, and sometimes the most horrible thing happens. And in this case, the most horrible thing opened up something amazing. So the way that she described it, she said, you know, I know it wasn't personal. Okay, that's an incredibly high bar into anatta. It's like, on one hand, we don't take it personally when we're thinking that thing or somebody does that thing near us on retreat, and then we also have this level. So I know it wasn't personal. He didn't set out to kill or maim me, Jill Hicks, I mean. He didn't know me. And then she describes her realization that she had become the enemy and that everybody on that subway had become the enemy to this person that did this thing. She um, lost both of her legs below the knee, which is why I particularly said when we have four portals, if we have four portals, not guaranteed, you know, the hands and the feet. So she's got hands, and she's got incredible feet support, but not her feet um, in terms of body flesh, her feet as they are now. So she said, in the time it takes to draw a breath, we were plunged into a darkness so immense it was almost tangible. What I imagine wading through tar might be like. We didn't know we were the enemy. We were just a bunch of commuters who minutes earlier had gotten on the tube. You know? And she describes how in a, in a situation of strangers in this you know, situation, that people started calling out their names people that were injured but still alive. So she says she called out her name. You know, I'm Jill. I'm here. I'm alive. And then somebody named Allison called out her name and said, I'm Allison. I'm here. I'm alive. And then somebody called Richard, did the same thing, and they kept doing it every few minutes until they were rescued. On her website, which I was looking at, um, preparing for this Sharing, she said, you know, the stranger that's sitting next to you may save your life. How would you relate to them if you were remembering that? Even here, we don't know. We got a lot of good support here. So she goes through this process and she talks about how by the time she was rescued, she couldn't even say her name. She said, I understood just who and what humanity really is. And when I first saw the ID tag that was given to me when I was admitted to the hospital, here's what the tag read. One unknown estimated female. That was her label. And she said, those four words were my gift. And this was her insight. She said, what they told me very clearly was that my life was saved Purely because I was a human being. Difference of any kind made no difference to the extraordinary lengths that the rescuers were prepared to go to save my life, to save as many unknowns as they could, putting their own lives at risk. To them, it didn't matter whether I was rich or poor, the color of my skin, whether I was male or female, my sexual orientation, who I voted for, whether I was educated. If I had faith or no faith at all, nothing mattered other than I was a precious human life. She said, I see myself as a living fact. I am proof that unconditional love and respect can not only save, but can transform lives. And then she talks about her process of being saved. And she says, you know, as I was being taken out of the situation, my hand was held tightly My face was her cry. My face was stroked gently, and I felt loved. And the way she describes it is that that love and that ability to receive that love, she feels like saved her from the bitterness and the resentment and the hatred of the one who so completely othered her and everybody on that train that they were willing to take lives. And she's literally spent the rest of her life since then, the last 12 years, publicly speaking, you know, putting together interdisciplinary teams of artists and therapists and change makers and politicians to tackle some of the di- most difficult situations on our planet, you know, consulting in some of the top corporations where the power lays with this message of love and tolerance, but here's what I know. I don't have to know her to know this. It's got to be hard. And I'm sure sometimes there's doubt and I'm sure sometimes there's despair because it's about wholeness. And yet we can still manifest that love and include the whole mess and keep having the courage. It's incredible. I seem to be going to this quote, so I'll trust that. Um, It's from a practitioner. It is I who must love myself. No one else can make me feel whole. Only I can provide that love. Now I know that wholeness is always accessible to me and all beings everywhere. This knowing allows me to live with a new peacefulness and kindness to myself and others. In the simplest way, it has changed my whole life. I think we touched that here, over and over. So I'm just feeling in to that story. You know, I'm fe- just feeling into us, and it's like, okay, this is the practice. Hard things happen. Love is possible. Fear is included. So let's sit in that for a moment. Some of us are going to need to settle our nervous systems. Feel your feet. And if you're having trouble feeling your feet, press them into the ground. Press your hands in your thighs. It's like, oh, oh, this is not an easy world. And we don't have to be taken out. Go back to her first quote. We can't control certain events or dramatic change in life, Jill says, but we can control how we react and respond. We can be in relationship. So let's take a few deeper breaths and just remember there's enough air in the room to breathe with the fullness of the tragedy and the beauty. And again, that sense of gratitude. Uh, We can be that presence and we are of naming truths. of this integration and wholeness of mind and body, of this heart that cares. And we can offer it to ourselves. We can offer it to each other as we move around here, both through our own practice, supporting others, and through that sense of extending the kindness without needing to fix or change. And teaches us what it's like to feel more safe more often. So that our clarity and wisdom can shine through.